So, hi everyone, welcome to this episode of The Soft Hub. Today we have a special guest with us, uh, Vlad Edelman, CTO at Fiscal Note. Thanks so much, Vlad, for joining us. Uh, I've been listening to you to, uh, to you on other occasions and was really taken by your journey, personality, leadership style, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. And thank you for- My pleasure. Me. Thanks for having me, Aaron. So let's start off with maybe uh, you telling us a little bit about Fiscal Note and your role as CTO. Yeah, of course. So I think it makes sense to go back a few years. So I'm actually quickly approaching in a few days my 10-year anniversary, uh, which if you asked me 10 years ago where, where this journey is going to lead, uh, I would have no idea. Uh, and I think that's part of maybe what we'll talk about later as an evolving um, both as an employee, as a leader, as a, any kind of corporate uh, kind of structure. Um, part of it is the adventure of, of not knowing. And so when I joined, I was joining uh, almost fresh out of my PhD, which I got in uh, AI, essentially building machine learning systems for, for language processing. Uh, and I was really excited by the opportunity of working at a company where the core mission was trying to make world's uh, legal regulatory policy data accessible and building different ways of, of accessing it, analyzing it, especially with my background of, of AI, it's analyzing all of this unstructured document data that we're collecting. And so fast forward over the years, organization has grown both organically and through acquisition, uh, but the core mission has essentially stayed consistent. It's uh, trying to provide both products and services that uh, identify and analyze the opportunities and risks associated with different uh, governmental and policy related organizations. So regulatory changes, legislative changes, and the ways that companies both from the tiniest, you know, single state operating kind of nonprofits to the largest, you know, Fortune 100 companies need to understand the world and be able to react to both geopolitical and policy and, and market kind of intelligence. Wow, uh, sounds sounds interesting. Just just a little technical question around that. What are the, the exact deliverables? It sounds very different from uh, the typical software company that I uh, that I'm familiar with. Uh, maybe. So uh, it's a, in a broad category, you'd probably say information services or SaaS. Um, we have a number of products that are meant for, you know, direct consumer use that we sell with an enterprise sales model. Uh, and those are essentially, I would say, um, all following a generally kind of at a high level stack of some sort of data collection from the outside world. So we're collecting from 50,000 plus kind of URLs or data sources across the world. You know, every uh, locality in the U.S., every city, every council with a certain population, you know, all the state legislative regulatory bodies, federal bodies in the U.S., and then internationally from dozens of countries, similarly from their parliaments, from different organizations. And so we're constantly collecting this data. Uh, it might be accessible public data. It might be something that takes us uh, a bit of time to get into a certain contract or a vendor relationship to be able to access. But essentially, it's outside data that we're collecting. So that's at the bottom of, of all of our products. Second layer is the analysis. And so that's where... When we started 10 years ago, it was almost all automated. Uh, we did a number of things like trying to analyze relationships between different stakeholders. You know, what is this news story or, or piece of legislation about? Is it going to impact uh, an airline company or a hotel? And how is it going to impact them? Is it positive, negative? And then there's a, a workflow element. And so there's a collaboration ability to get alerts, ability to understand how you're going to act on those alerts afterwards. So something happens in in New York and you're an airline company, you need to be able to react, maybe have a public affairs uh, message that goes out, maybe be able to go to uh, your, your congressman and be able to advocate for a certain solution that you want or don't want uh, according to kind of the changes that you're having. And then there's internally, there's a compliance team, there's a legal team, all of them have implications across what the different changes in the world might be. And so as we've evolved, uh, we've brought in a lot more of our 
subject matter expertise capabilities. And this is where we probably become a little bit different from a lot of software companies. And this is where we're more similar to information services, where we have geopolitical experts across all of the countries, especially through something like Oxford Analytica or Frontier View or CQ, where they are writing reports that are specific to, you know, changes in Nigeria or France or Jordan and being able to really pinpoint what the business opportunities might, there might be. Uh, maybe you're a healthcare company looking at Brazil, you know, going in specifically collecting data and doing an analysis of opportunities there to launch a medical device. And so what we're, I think, uniquely positioned to is to marry kind of our, our abilities to automate a lot of data collection and analysis and then provide a layer of human inference, which we could talk about later in terms of with large language models and other kinds of capabilities, you know, how do we marry those two? And that's kind of where I fit in. And, and my passion is trying to constantly figure out what kinds of capabilities do we have that can be automated or enabled with AI? And where do we still draw the line where we need a human perspective, either to be in the loop or on top of the loop, or maybe even outside uh, where we got into a point where it's sufficiently trustworthy and reliable for our clients. Wow. It's, it's, it really sounds fascinating to be honest as, and, you know, as speaking as someone who is in the industry and understands how software is, is coming about from an idea to, to something that's working, it just sounds challenging and super interesting. Um, so yeah, maybe, maybe our, my next question will be around that because that's, that's a fascinating topic around how do we bring AI uh, specifically in, in, in a software development environment, how do we link between those tools? I, I still think these are tools more than uh, anything else. How do we mm -hmm. kind of reconcile uh, the tension, so to speak, between AI and automation and human insight? Um, you know, there's a lot of talk with generative AI uh, and people confuse it with generic AI and mm -hmm. it's all kind of a cloud. Everyone kind of have their own perception of, of what AI is. And um, it's certainly a space that's developing now, how to embrace these, these new technologies and these new models. What's kind of your view on that? Mm -hmm. So without taking up the whole podcast talking about this, <laughs> no, I think this is a subject I could take up uh, hours, honestly. Um, I mean, Throughout the course of the development, uh, and I think you said it rightly, it's a tool, right? It's a software tool. And so if you replace AI with any other tool that we have, whether it's Microsoft or, or some, some Google service, um, a human plus that tool is likely going to be better than a human without that tool. And is likely going to be better than just that tool by itself, which doesn't even make sense if you're talking about something like PowerPoint, but starts to make a little sense if you're talking about something like Deep Blue or AlphaGo or something. And so what we found, and I think all of this is subject to change, because of the maturity curve and the evolution of this is that, you know, when you look at switchboards or calculators um, or chess playing, you know, we thought that those were the pinnacles of intelligence and success. And then when we could automate that solution, having an ATM, having a switchboard that automatically switches calls, you know, we cross the line and say, oh, okay, but that's not really artificial intelligence. Yes, we've automated that process and we keep going. But at each point, uh, the Luddites being obviously a good example, right? There's a, a change that happens uh, in a transition, if you will, of, of how people think about themselves and how people think about their contribution to the world, the impact they make and the way that they are interacting with technology. And so um, I think it's often not as appreciated as I think it probably should be how much technology actually changes our, our ability to, or kind of our self perception and the ability of it to be able to really change uh, what kinds of work we can do and, and how we do it. And so the way I think about AI, and so I, I've been at this um, close to, to two decades now, um, you know, when I started, uh, we'll call it, you know, it's very much in the, the kind of 
uh, machine learning resurgence of the early 2000s, mid 2000s, where you know all mm-hmm. the compute came, was coming online, uh, all the data that was on the internet, machine readable was coming online, and, and those two things really combined to give the algorithms that have been developed from the 50s, like Rosenblatt, Perceptron, and everything yeah. that's been coming out since then, the opportunity to show how powerful they were. And so things like support vector machines and uh, like neural networks in, in various forms were all just tools that we were using and figuring out like, okay, given the no free lunch theorem, any one of them might be the best suited for a given problem. But we had all, all the questions of domain adaptation and zero shot learning and how to do certain things. And I think as we've evolved over the last 15 years, um, you know, starting probably with kind of embeddings, image embeddings, uh, both in, in, in words and in, in images, right, in 2012, 13, and building up from there, um, we found that um, this pre-trained models that basically have a lot of world knowledge through the embeddings that they have, the more data, the better, can then be just adapted quickly to various tasks. Um, and I think um, a good question is, is it a difference of degree or of kind from the difference of, of what we've seen before? Um, I have a stronger argument now than I did a year ago that it's a di- difference of kind, and primarily because of the way that um, it's changed who can interact with AI and machine learning. It used to be even probably a year ago, maybe two years ago, that you had to have yep. uh, education kind of like me in a background in data science to be able to even use one of the open APIs that are available off of Google or any other company. You still needed some technical expertise. Now, as, as many have said, uh, essentially all you have to do is, is know English uh, and you can program and build a, a website and be able to build any product, build a machine learning algorithm, uh, essentially just building off of existing infrastructure that's there. Uh, and so in a lot of ways, it's kind of like the equivalent of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, it used to be you need to have your own data center and your own compute and your own out everything. Now you have AWS, you have another stack on top of that that creates a lot of things. And so AI has just become another tool uh, in the stack that it's become very available. And so I think that that opens up a ton of possibilities and opportunities. And with any of those, there's always a hype cycle that comes along with it because of the success of some of the tools like ChatGPT, um, and there's, you know, IBM before that, IBM kind of like Watson and things. There's a huge hype cycle and we can talk about the incentives of, of those corporations and academic to, to kind of create that hype cycle for themselves. Um, but there's, then you have to pick apart kind of what is going to be useful and relevant and what's not. And so to kind of circle back to the, the core of your question of how do I think the combination of the human and technology goes, I think it, it's going to depend on who you are, what you're doing, what the risk profile is. And so maybe the one thing I'll say is that um, it, it's created a lot more opportunity for everyone to try to do something. And so if you're you know, personally building a little app for your, your child to you know, read bedtime stories and automate some of that, like super low risk, you know, I, I think there's a lot of opportunity to, and there's no kind of, I think, inherent um, infraction of, of who you are as a person. So people are very open to that. As soon as you start getting up into medical domain, legal domain, anything that's going to involve a lot more risk and a lot more, uh, or a lot less risk tolerance and ultimate decision making and the outcome. Uh, that's where you get a lot more. Uh, I would say both ethical considerations, regulatory considerations, and then commercial considerations. So technologically, I think that we're at a place where we can do a lot more um, automation and enablement than we've ever been able to. I think that the impediment is going to be both kind of ethical responsibility as well as the regulatory um, of how we actually combine what we can do with what people are, are ready for and, and what makes sense. And so I'm happy to talk about specific examples of, of what I've seen of trying to apply that in various places. I think uh, there's certain things that make it more likely to be successful, less likely. Um, but I think it's, it's always challenging. The most challenging part is getting, I think, the people who are going to be impacted by the technology, even if the overall impact in the mid to long term is going to be positive, to kind of understand how to change both internally and externally what they're doing to go with that transition. 100%. 
my, you know, one of my passions and, and the things that, that kind of drives me and uh, has been my focus is the overall process or the overall, uh, how do you say it, the, 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 the way an organization works to bring about an idea into something that that's that's a deliverable that that's something that's working and others can can enjoy and benefit from given your your very interesting journey and i can say it's it's it's, it's uh I, I found similarities in my own journey from um jumping up directly from university into an organization building it from 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 the first steps all the way to to a larger team that that has all these components, as you mentioned, uh, in other uh, areas of when I, where, where I uh, um, heard you around DevOps mm -hmm. and all the other components that drive software. My question is, with with your team, um, how do you view these different types of roles, these different types of of of, of specific proficiencies that are required? Uh, to get us that that organization that works as an oil machine from ideation to, to production, um, mm -hmm. specifically in your organization, how do you see that structure? And is your feel that that technology or more how these people are structures and work together uh, is the human aspect or or the technology aspect uh, a better has a better chance of being a, a change a change driver. A long question. So, uh, one word answer: the human aspect. I guess that's two words. Um, the uh, the kind of longer answer is that um, I've been lucky enough to be at this organization for ten years, but it's been a entirely different organization. You know, every three to six months, um, and so that I think has largely been driven by by people. But I, I think the one thing I want to draw from that is when we started. You know, we were obviously going around on the, you know, on the investment circuit, on the, you know, doing roadshows, doing presentations and all these uh, fairs. Uh, and we saw a lot of other startups. And so, again, lucky enough to meet a lot of other startups and founders and other technology companies. Um, and, you know, 10 years is a long enough time where we can look back now and see kind of like how things have played out. And I would say that early on, I was seeing a lot of companies, not necessarily directly in our space, but reasonably you know, close, uh, that I would say had better technology than us. Uh, they were spending uh, ratio-wise more of their resources on technology. I think this is a credit where you know I give to our CEO entirely, where you know we've always kind of had a ratio of you know technology to to go to market to other operational roles, even from the beginning, kind of building a foundation to be more scalable. Whereas a lot of companies really focused on technology, uh, product technology, um, at the expense of understanding. A, how they're working together and how that's going to scale. And then B, how do we actually make sure that that connects with the consumer? Because we're talking about people, the human aspect. I think that's both internally of how people work together at an organization. Obviously, that's, I think, maybe the more intent of your question. But there's also the human aspect of who is actually the consumer, the buyer, the product, right? You're building something for consumers. And, uh, you know, Amazon is, is famous for this, for Jeff Bezos saying, focus on the customer. Um, but the customer is a human, right? And so at the end of the day, it's humans talking to humans, even if it's a more of a product-led company. And so... The human aspect of then organizing the people and how they're working together, how you make decisions, how they're actually feeling like they're making an impact if they understand their role fits in and how they're connecting to the broader mission. That's where I've seen the most challenge. Um, we have people who uh, have a ton of motivation and determination to do the right thing, to want to be contributing in the right ways. And then technology is going to change. And, you know, there's any given day, there's five different companies coming out that 
do something, an open source project that you want to pick up and try, it's going to solve a problem. No matter when you decide on something, it's going to be outdated and tech debt, you know, the next day, probably. Uh, and so I think the core question is, who was making the decisions, how, and then how do you work together to make them? Um, I think that things break down very easily between people, between personalities. Uh, there's Conway's law, right? Like an organizational structure is going to reflect, um, kind of the technology structure reflects the people who are behind it. Uh, so maybe that's another support of the answer. It's, it's human aspect that drives uh, over the technology aspect. Um, and so what I've tried to do, and I think this is, this is um, again, both I've been lucky that we've grown organically and through acquisition. And so one of the biggest lessons I've learned is that uh, when you're acquiring a company, again, you could ask the same question, are you acquiring technology? Are you acquiring revenue? Are you acquiring customers? I would say we're acquiring people. Um, and so the, um, the biggest advantage of all of the uh, acquisitions that we've done is how the talent has really impacted the company when it's come in. And so I think we've been good at basically encouraging people to look around and say, where do I think the biggest impact for me is going to be? Uh, and there's a huge difference in mentality from you know, a founder of an organization coming in. Uh, and then they're going to take a role like a manager, director, VP role. But their mentality is still of, of that founder kind of looking across the organization and giving them the space and the room to feel empowered to to you know go outside what the job description is on paper. And that applies to everyone. I, I just I feel like it's it's more present in, in someone who has that founder mentality already. But then encouraging that behavior and really highlighting it and pointing it out and recognizing it so that people feel like there isn't five levels of discussions they need to have. You know, they can come directly to me or the CEO or just make a decision of like, hey, I'm going to work on this and then bring it to a demo day and say, hey, like, isn't this something that's valuable? Um, and the reason I want to, to have people do that and trust them to do that is to, if they understand like what direction of the company is. And so just communication constantly. Um, there's no one right system software artifact for you know how to present goals, how to make sure that people understand where they are in goals. Uh, that's going to change too. That's another aspect of technology, like operations technology, right? That that's not as important as uh, the intent of it, which is how do I know if I'm working on the right things? How do I know what's important for the company right now? And that's just constant communication, which is um, it's hard. It's a constant overhead, constant process. Absolutely, you've, it's just fascinating. You've you've touched on so many aspects and, and so many little points of the things that I I really think are, are pivotal. Uh, and I agree with you. It's it's from from the way I see things. It's all about the human aspect. As as technology matures and we have more sophisticated tools that are easy and harder to use, uh, it all comes down to, to the human aspect. And one of the things that that that, that really um, drove me to, to get a new thinking, uh, write my book and, and, and dwell into this problem is, is the huge challenge that I see in around productivity, around productivity and, and uh, I would say human potential in the workplace. One of the things that drove me towards that is having worked with so many different organizations and people, I just kept sawing, seeing a lot of waste, a lot of potential that's not realized. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of productivity use, I think there's a new term now called uh, developer experience. And it kind of ties to what you were describing earlier. All these things that uh, come under what I feel, what I think, what I value as, as a contributor in an organization, how that affects the overall organization. And my question around that is that's something that you're considering is that something that you're measuring is that something you're aware of is that a challenge that you're 
uh, mm-hmm. facing in, in your job? Sure. And I mean, I think if I can, I, I want to tie a kind of a couple of different questions you asked together mm-hmm. in answering sure. this, because yep. there's the you know, human aspect of technology, then there's the AI aspect of automation, how you bridge human and AI in, in that, under the technology aspect. And so into the developer experience, I mean, certainly uh, tooling is important. As we just said, AI is hugely important. Uh, ability to automate things, whether it's through uh, generative AI or other kinds of AI or automation, you know, not to discount. There's various ways, like there, there's certain tools that are better for a certain problem than others. Uh, but in any case, the, the point is that there are tools that make things better. And so, you know, it's, <laughs> this might be a, a controversial statement, but there are certain IDEs that make it easier to develop than, than other IDEs. There's certain plugins, like if you're using GitHub Copilot, that might make certain tasks better in certain languages for certain kinds of engineers, maybe not for others. And so it takes some time and you know, work to develop uh, an understanding of what kinds of tools enable, make things more efficient. And there's a constant push toward that. So uh, maybe that's not a counterpoint, but in addition to the previous statement about the human aspect being more important, part of that is identifying what tools make it better for humans to work together, whether that's directly you know, to write code, to be able to peer review it together, to be able to launch it more quickly. So like DevOps, you know, as a precursor, maybe to the developer experience, you know, building up a capability to do continuous deployment, continuous kind of iteration, um, to be able to deploy things, to be able to roll back, like, those are all things that for the developer experience make things a lot easier. You don't have to go in through, you know, a certain instance on your cloud computing and log in and figure out what's going on. Like there's certain logging tools and all this, you, know, you put it into a data lake or a, some sort of data warehouse where you can build monitoring tools on top of that and you can automate the alerts. And so all of those are obviously tools, technology that doesn't, you know, I don't think that retracts from the answer that human aspect is more important. I think that just means that we should be using tools to make humans' lives easier so that they can then focus on the actual things that matter to build the company up and to, to move forward. Um, and so developer experience to me means how to make the lives of developers um, better, both in understanding what they should be working on, again, the intent of, of like the, the, the whole product, the customer, how to make sure that they are in for information coming into them uh, is not as difficult to get to. That is something that we're pushing toward them, um, but mostly probably on their day-to-day work how to make it so that they're not worrying about all these things that probably aren't, uh, you know, they're not the best suited to worry about. Maybe as the organization evolves, you have an engineer that probably needs to do everything. And so when I started, there was a front end engineer, back end engineer, me, you know, we were all responsible for everything, you know, spinning up our own instances, figuring out the security, figuring out how to launch them, the APIs, everything. So as you grow, again, there's different philosophies on this, you probably start to specialize. And so you get to a point where you might have a platform team that supports multiple product teams, multiple projects, and so that you take some of the responsibility away from individuals. And so that might be difficult as well from the human aspect, again, talking about if people feel like they're empowered to do everything. And then there's transition points where, you know, you have to take some hats away and give that to someone else because it ultimately means that, you know, you're going to make the lives of a person better because someone else can handle something that they had to use, you know, they used to do. And so you might take away some of the infrastructure building responsibility and give that to a DevOps team that starts to scale out its ability to um, create certain standards and tooling that then everyone can use and doesn't have to think every time about which tool should I use because that's already set as a program or standard. And so um, building up basically that kind of standard, uh, maybe you call it centralized. It doesn't have to be necessary, but kind of centralized playbooks for how to do certain things. So when you're, starting to build another feature, another application, you don't have to go out and and figure out all for yourself, like which program language should I use? What framework should I use? There's a certain playbook, a certain standard, you pick it up, you run it, there's a container, it has all of the different, you know, uh, let's say modules that you need. uh, And then you basically have everything set up. And so for me, developer experience, I guess, if you want to sum it up is how do we accelerate the time to, uh, to get a product out the door? 
by being able to create standards and playbooks to take as much away from the developer of having to worry about every different decision that we have built up over time, some expertise in, and then they could focus on what the core kind of differentiated aspect or feature is of that certain product. And so everything else might be available, whether it's through a data like having data, whether it's through playbooks for how to deploy something and, and run it in a cloud computing environment, whether it's access to uh, different um, algorithms, machine learning algorithms, other kinds of things that they don't have to develop themselves. It's basically how do we decrease the time to market for a product? Wow, you've touched on so many things that that are really on the top of my list of my interest areas. <laughs> so let me try. I know we're running a little bit out of time, but uh, I want to take this last opportunity to try to to break these down into maybe a few bullet sure. points and and maybe see um, you know your take on on where we're going. So what you're basically talking about is kind of the tension between developer experience and the need to scale or, or the, the, the process of scaling. So these kind of have adverse effects on one another as the more you scale, it looks like the developer experience changes dramatically. Uh, mm -hmm. Those different proficiencies now need to be very, very siloed and the role of, of the individual becomes different. They, they, it becomes more specialized. And that may have an adverse effect on his experience because he's coming from a, where, mm -hmm. a place where he's able to influence, he has control over a lot of things. He sees the broader picture. He's involved in, very as, in, in various aspects of his daily routine. And now his role changes. It needs to be more specific. Uh, you mentioned playbooks. You mentioned rigid, uh, more rigid processes around that. Uh, that ability to come and ask questions, uh, accessibility to CTO, accessibility to to decision makers. Mm -hmm. These these become more of a challenge. My personal view is all these things that we've been talking about the the, the combination between AI and the human factor. Um, the, the tension between the need to scale and produce things quickly uh, and the developer experience all merit some kind of change. The, mm -hmm. the way that our organizations are now structured and working uh, seems to be broken. And what we were just talking as, as the optimal type of organization that organically grows, DX stays uh, high, um, time to market stays low, all these things. It looks like we can't really resolve them unless we change something fundamental. That's really my feeling, and that's the reason I wrote my book. And my question is, do you do you feel that sentiment as well? That it's there's a tension between there's a tension, uh, yeah. and, and the way that organizations are now built need to change. Something fundamental in the paradigm needs to change. It's it's like the shift that. Uh, you know, happened 20 years ago mm -hmm. from waterfall to agile. It looks like from, from the way people work together, something is now missing to get to all these benefits that you were talking, high DX, uh, combining mm -hmm. AI, having that sense of ownership, breaking down the silos, being less specific, uh, retaining mm -hmm. that, you know, feeling of growth and, and value and contribution high. Do you feel yeah. that something needs to change in the way our organizations are built? So I, I think the answer is ultimately yes, but maybe a little bit more complex than that. Okay. I think it's incredibly difficult as you grow to maintain certain aspects of you said of, of like um, of understanding of intent of context. Um, and so, I mean, this is beyond tech 
tech companies, right? This okay. is any organization, any group of people, right? That come together at a certain size, there needs to be changes, right? And so to your point, like something does need to change. I would say that it's a set of changes, not maybe one change, right? At, at any given size of a company or organization, there's a certain set of things that are working and then they're not working. Um, and you can read about them. And certainly, you know, I, I've read a lot of books about what I could expect as we grew to certain stages, but until you live it and you actually see it and you recognize it and you say, oh, that's what that meant when they said like, you know, these groups of people wouldn't work together or like, oh, that's what it meant. Like we're going a lot slower because the handoffs between teams are taking a sprint each. And so it takes like three sprints to get something done when it should have taken one because they're actually not coordinating. And sometimes you see it proactively, sometimes you see it retroactively. Um, and so there's certain things that absolutely need to change. I think it's um, some organizations do it better. And I think it maybe um, to your point, I think it's not something that's practically looked at. It's one of those things that uh, is taking a backseat um, to growth, to product development. Um, and, and often it's one of those things that doesn't seem as important because its impact is not going to be felt as immediately. And so those those are often ignored. Um, and so I think it takes a proactive outlook to say, I know something is going to break once we get to this size or this scale or this set of, of initiatives. And I need to put certain processes or practices in place, which there maybe exists like companies probably already some companies have figured it out like somewhere right it's not like you have to invent something totally new like there's certain principles from psychology from philosophy we know about human nature about how people want to work together um certainly some things are being uh, i think empirically verified now um but when you hear them um they, they make sense like oh that's intuitively reasonable that um someone would want a challenge and feel like they're making an impact and then there's a personalization aspect as well people want maybe a different outcome in their life. Some people are more ego motivated. Some people are more achievement motivated and you have to make customizations to a person's individual stance to feel like there's a, um, you know, a connection that they understand why they're doing certain things and how, and that's where a manager comes in and understanding things. But all of that, I think is wrapped up in my answer. of Yes. Something does need to change because um, you know, there's not enough time being spent on training managers to identify kind of how to, how to manage. I think there's not enough time being spent on proactively identifying what's going to break a certain points in a company's life cycle and then putting in a few, even a few kind of things. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't take, um, I think a lot of work, but it takes someone and someone owning something and, and being responsible for creating that. Um, um, and it, I think that often takes a backseat. And I think that's, uh, it's hard. Like I said, it's, it's definitely, um, it's not one solution. It's basically just any given company at a given scale. There might be five or 10 different solutions that might work, but there needs to be someone who's owning and trying to implement that. Wow, uh, amazing. Uh, yeah, I think uh, you've touched on something that I call the the tension between being change aware to change ready. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, taking that proactive approach and being always not resting on your laurels, but being future ready, looking at and seeing what do I need to change in the way I work so that my long term goals are, are in line with uh, my ability to reach them. Yes. Absolutely. And, and you also mentioned something, you mentioned human nature, and, and, and I really love the, the combination of human and nature. Uh, that's mm -hmm. kind of what I'm trying to do with my paradigm. Uh, look at nature, which is uh, the most complex system at, at, at large scale that we know, and try to get some, some, um, some insights and lessons and apply them into the way we work. So connect between nature and humans and, and, and align with human nature. Uh, awesome. Beautiful. Uh, so uh, one last question, if, uh, people want to follow your work and connect with you, what would be the best, uh, 
way to do sure. it. Sure. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Vlad Edelman at LinkedIn, uh, and, and uh, just Vlad at Fiscalnote for email if you want to shoot me an email. Sure. Uh, awesome. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And uh, yeah, I'll keep following you for sure. <laughs> uh, no, thank you. This is, uh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for the questions. It's been a great discussion. Thank you.